From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, August 3rd. So today began as another day where people all over the country have been wondering how long before the eviction notice shows up. The thinking was it could be weeks or even days, depending on where people live. The federal ban on evictions expired this past Saturday. And then, just as we were about to publish the show, our colleagues broke some news. The Biden administration is expected to announce an action that will limit evictions. It's not clear how many people this could help. This all comes after intense pressure from liberal Democrats in the House for Biden to do something for the millions of renters who are still behind on payments. And we're going to hear from one of them coming up. Because I had to fill out a CDC declaration form. Yeah. You know, so she couldn't. And I, I felt I was embarrassed to do that. I didn't want to do that, you know, but I had to protect myself and... People are scrambling, and it's not totally clear yet what this could mean for them. The moratorium on evictions had been in place for 11 months of the pandemic. The CDC said that it couldn't extend it further because of a Supreme Court ruling last month. That ruling said that for a ban to keep going, Congress would have to take action. So there was a situation where President Biden was calling on Congress to act, but liberals in Congress were saying that Biden could have signed an executive order. This was Gene Sperling on Monday afternoon. He heads up stimulus efforts for the White House. On the eviction moratorium issue, we have run into so far uh, uh, what seems to be very difficult obstacle from the Supreme Court ruling. And again, the president went out of his way to push to the CDC today to look even at 30 days, even targeted to high, you know, counties with higher infections. And the CDC independently came back and said, that they could not at this time find the legal authority. I don't think this means this president's going to give up. I think he's going to keep looking and pushing uh, uh, and kicking the tires and fifth, sixth looks, but we're going to do everything we can. There is other help out there, but as we're going to explore today, it's often not enough. A lot of American families are now getting monthly payments under an expanded child tax credit that Congress approved a few months ago. I believe this is actually a historic day. Historic day in the sense as we continue to build an economy that respects, recognizes the dignity of working class families and middle class families. It's historic and it's our effort to make another giant step toward ending child poverty in America. So in March, when the American Rescue Plan was passed by Congress, uh, it included an expansion of the child tax credit program. And what it basically did is create a income source of cash assistance for working parents, regardless of how much money they made. Kyle Swenson covers social issues for The Post. It's about $300 a month for children under six, and it's about $250 a month for children under 18. Um, and so what it really is, is, is a universal basic income for parents. You know, it's this experiment in this really kind of progressive approach to tackling poverty, which is putting money in people's pockets directly for parents who are struggling. And the ambitions are bold. I mean, they say it could, you know, raise as many as 4 million kids out of poverty in this country. This can be life-changing for so many families. Because of the way the tax credit was structured, But there's one kind of big problem with it, and that 
goes back to how we think about poverty in this country, which is about income. You know, how much money Mm. do you make? That's how poor you are. I mean, that makes sense to me, right? That like your... I don't know how how else you would measure poverty. That is true. That, and that's a definite basic ingredient into what makes a person poor or not poor is how much money you have coming in. But the truth of the matter is, is that standard was set in the 1960s. It's actually really interesting. It was part of the Lyndon Johnson administration's war on poverty. You know, if we're going to tackle poverty, the federal government's going to tackle poverty. We have to figure out how to tell if someone's poor or not. And so they came up with a criteria that was based on income. But you know, back in the day, poor people didn't have debt because they couldn't get credit. They couldn't get credit cards. There were no payday loans. Medical bills weren't as high. They weren't taking out loans to get further their education. And basically today to be poor is not only to have maybe lower income, but then also to be saddled with this huge amount of debt from missed payments, from late fees, from things like payday loans that you're doing just to get by. And now the federal government's lofty expectations for stimulus programs like the child tax credit are crashing into the reality of debt, for many people also made up of back rent and late utility bills. All of this has been made worse by the pandemic. A lot of families are finding these payments helpful, but they're simply not enough when a large portion of the money has to go toward paying debt. This little one, little Jordan, he, he wakes up three o'clock every morning. Really? You know, I found a woman named Brittany Baker, uh, who was a mother of three small kids in Dayton, Ohio. I had little Jordan um, on July 2nd of 2019. Uh, Nearly half of all Black households with children in the U.S. are in a situation that economists refer to as net worth poor. That means that when you take their assets and subtract their debt payments, what's left over isn't enough to cover basic needs for three months. Before the pandemic, things were manageable for Britney's family. They had savings, they could cover their rent and bills. They were making things work. She met her fiancé when they were both working at Arby's. Um, It was one of a number of fast food jobs she'd had for a long time. And they got together and in 2019, she kind of got a big break when she was hired at a local hospital on the cleaning staff. And she made, when this new position, $15 an hour. Now, at the time, she and her fiancé had a child, their first child, and they had a decision to make, and it was whether or not they pay for childcare, which can be quite expensive, up to $800 really for a single child uh, in the Dayton area or whether or not her fiance Jordan would stay home. So they would lose one kind of potential flow of income, but they would not have to pay for childcare. At the time, because Brittany had this good opportunity, she was making $15 an hour at this new job, it seemed secure. The family decided that Jordan would stay home and take care of the kid and later more kids while Brittany worked. So with Brittany working at the hospital uh, in this good job, the family was in a good place economically and they decided to have more kids. They eventually had a second child. And then going into the spring of 2020, she finds out she's pregnant with a third child. She was in her mid-30s by this point. She had asthma, chronic asthma, and her doctors cautioned that she was probably going into a high-risk pregnancy situation. 
But at the exact same time, COVID-19 is beginning to kind of blitz through the country. And her doctors also tell her that she is probably at very high risk for suffering the worst consequences of COVID-19 if she catched it. So now Brittany has a decision to make. Does she continue working uh, with this high-risk pregnancy and possibly expose herself to COVID? Or does she go home and uh, collect unemployment and have her child and then get back to work as fast as she can so she can get back to getting a regular paycheck? And what does Brittany decide to do? So Brittany leaves work in April and she immediately applies for unemployment assistance. That claim would actually take months to kind of grind through the system because there's such a traffic jam of other claims. So I waited, 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 turned in documents, everything to ask for, turned it in, emailed them, I emailed the state rep, I, I mean, I called them every single day. I, I, And actually, when she finally gets a response in midsummer, it's a rejection. What the state had decided was that she was actually not leaving work because of COVID. She was leaving work because of her baby. She was taking a leave of absence. Now, her doctors immediately disagreed with this. They said, no, no, it's really both. She's, She's at risk for the pregnancy and she's at risk for COVID. She should not be working as the bottom line. So she appeals that decision, which basically puts her at the back of the line. And again, her uh, appeal now is grinding through the unemployment system very slowly. In the meantime, she has to buy groceries for the kids. She has to pay the bills that she can. She has to pay the internet. She has to pay the light bill, all these utilities. So she immediately goes through her savings, which is a couple thousand dollars. That's gone in a matter of weeks. Then she is taking out small emergency payday loans, which have 500 to 1,000% interest payments on top of them, just to get cash in her hand so she can buy groceries. Um, very quickly, she realizes that's kind of untenable. So she basically is starting to get desperate. She begins going to food banks or asking for food assistance to be dropped off at her house. Those boxes of donated food go only so far. And Again, she also, for the first time, is missing rent. She begins not making her monthly rent payment because she has to pay for everything else. So on top of all of this pressure she has with her health, with this unborn baby, she now knows that every month that's going by is basically a month where she's not paying her rent. She's getting closer to a possible eviction. Eventually, the state hears her appeal and Uh, reverses their early decision and grants her unemployment benefits. They say, okay, we were wrong. You're right. It is about COVID and your baby. You do deserve unemployment benefits. So that comes in late summer. And by that point, Brittany is probably uh, $10,000 in debt with all the payments she's had to make in these high interest loans. So the money begins coming in. But literally the day after she gets that letter, she goes into labor with her third child. And it was a premature birth. The baby was in the NICU for a number of weeks. She was exhausted and and incredibly physically drained from the pregnancy. And when she gets home, she develops a blood clot in her leg and is rushed back to the same hospital with a a life-threatening blood clot that they catch in time. But in terms of not only her health, but in terms of the family's economics, this delays her return to work, which is basically what this family is hanging on to. They're hanging on this idea that eventually Brittany can get back to work and start making that $15 an hour again, and the family can hopefully begin to crawl out of debt. 
So finally in December, it, it takes almost the whole year for Brittany to get there. But finally in December, she is okay to go back to work. She gets the coronavirus vaccine. She gets a checkup from the doctors. And at that checkup, they deliver kind of a surprise to her. They say, hey, you're pregnant again, a fourth child. Now, this is overwhelming to her because she had basically just gone through this whole process where she had to choose between the life of her child and their steady income as a family. And she was terrified about what that would mean. She was terrified of wor missing work again, of losing out on her steady paycheck, what that would mean for her other children. She was terrified of what this fourth pregnancy would do to her body, her ability to work. So ultimately she decides that she has to get back to work, that she's the provider for this family, for these three children, soon to be four children, for a fiance. He offers to go find work. She says, you know, who knows how long that'll take. It's easier if you stay home with the kids still. It's a relief on my mind to know I'll be clocking in and they're taken care of. So she decides I just have to get back to work. At the same time though, she is going through what turns out to be a really hard high-risk pregnancy. Every day she's feeling uh, the pains in her body. Uh, some days I'm in tears. Um, they gave me Robaxin, which is a muscle relaxer. Um, I can't take it. Makes me feel like I've been drinking. Um, Eventually she's feeling contractions. She becomes dilated. You know, her body is really telling her to stop and the doctors are saying, you need to be on bed rest. You don't need to be working. But in her mind, I have three other kids at home. I have to take care of my fiance. It doesn't feel like there's an option there. There's no other option. So that when I got to meet and spend time with Brittany, she was getting up every day at 5 a.m., taking a shot that was trying to kind of stabilize her body. She was getting on a bus for an hour's drive to work. She was working all day long, very physically grueling. First of all, I have to push a cart. Um, my cart weighs uh, probably over 25 pounds. The trash is sometimes heavy. Sometimes my nerves, my legs just go out. Um, and that's from the sciatic nerve, like from the way the baby is moving and stuff like that. And um, So sometimes I'm in tears and, you know, I'm limping. You know, it has been times where I have to ask a co-worker to push me in a wheelchair. I can't stay. And, and what did she say about what this was like for her, this feeling of looming financial stress and, and potential disaster? It was incredibly difficult for her to go through. At one point last year, the very end of last year, she felt like she was in such a bad situation that she called Children's Family Services on herself. She called and said, I don't think oh. I can be a mother anymore to my children because of what's going on, unless I get some help from the government. Uh, I needed help. I knew, I knew that I, I wasn't able to go to, to do, um, be a fully functioning parent. I needed right. some help. Uh, I needed, I, and I wasn't even asking for money. I was just asking, just, just pay, just you can go, go, go pay my bills, bring, bring me some food, bring me, bring my kids some clothes and diapers. You know, I wasn't really, I, I was never asking people for money. I was right. asking for help. Yeah. She's asking for help from someone. And 
you know, I'd asked her, well, didn't you, when you pick up that phone, weren't you worried that they would come and take your kids away? And she said, you know, of course, you know, that was in the back of my mind. When that man was sitting here, we was talking like me and you, I, I started crying. And he was just he like, came. what's wrong? And yeah, he, he, he came. Yeah, came. And, um, and he was just like, why are you crying? And I said, well, I said, you know, a lot of people say that you guys just want to come and take my kids. Yeah. You know, so I said, so I'm sitting here being humble, asking you for something when I, I really don't want to call you at all. Yeah. You know, and I, I told him that. She knew she was just trying to be a good mother, but she also just didn't know where else to turn or what else would help the situation. That, that, that's the biggest thing that that's the biggest thing that's getting me is just that uh, I'm like, I actually feel like I'm failing because no, no matter where I turn, nothing's working out for me. And what happens is that Children's and Family Services come out, they visit her, they you know, look around the premise and what they see is, you know, a really well-maintained home, you know, happy kids, uh, a family that's together. What they don't see are usually the red flags that would cause them to take children out of the situation. And so they don't really have a solution for Brittany. In the end, they sent her a letter saying, you know, there's no, re we're closing your case. We have nothing we can do. There's going to be no assistance provided for you. So here she goes mm -hmm. out on this ledge, you know, and, and takes this dramatic step asking for help. And in the end, she gets a letter back saying, you know, sorry, we can't do anything. And that, that was just, uh, I mean, I was kind of, I was kind of, I'm thinking like, well, wouldn't you want to, and I think the system is backwards like that, because wouldn't you want to help somebody that's trying to help their self? That's just like the job. So what did she do after that? It seems like she got to this, I don't know, worst case scenario of saying, I'm willing to potentially risk custody of my kids so that I can make sure that they're cared for. And then even that doesn't work or it doesn't help. So what ended up coming up was the child tax credit. Just about right around that time that she had made that call and they were inspecting um, her house, this very large package of programs passes the American Rescue Plan in March of this year. And that included the expansion of the child tax credit. And eventually, you know, Brittany hears about it and she thinks this is this could be a really good thing for her and her family. But as you were saying at the beginning, I mean, these are checks that are based on income and not necessarily taking into account the debt that people are facing. And it sounds like Brittany is also struggling with debt. So how did that affect what she ultimately received? So for, with three kids, the top line for this one-year program, she could get about um, a little under $1,100. And her debt, basically, th that she accrued throughout COVID in the last year and everything, was really within a within $1,000 of that same number. So really, whatever she mm -hmm. got was very close to what she owed. And then that doesn't take a fact that she's still buying groceries and feeding hungry, growing kids and trying to pay mm -hmm. a little money on the rent. So the reality is that when that payment comes uh, in a monthly check... She got about $900 for the three kids. And within a few days, you know, it was gone. And she had said to me, you know, I'm broke again. Even though this check was coming in and it helped, it's a big deal. It's a lot of money for someone in her situation, $900. Big deal. That she couldn't apply that money to the debt. It had to go to the necessities of just getting by for her family for until the next check comes. So... Because of the situation, because of these hard choices she's been put into, she has so much debt, she can't use the money that's coming in and it's supposed to free her from poverty to get ahead. And she's definitely not alone. One of the weird things about debt, though, is it's kind of a foggy concept. You know, we have some hard numbers on mortgages. We have some hard numbers on credit card delinquency. But, you know, some people might be taking 
payday loans at really high interest rates. Some people might borrow cash from a family member. So what somebody owes, you know, what they have hanging over them, it's not necessarily a number that's easy to read. But one way that we kind of have gotten a peek into people's anxieties about debt is through their responses to surveys about how they use stimulus money. So we've had three rounds of stimulus checks that have come through in response to the uh, pandemic. And each time the Federal Reserve Bank of New York uh, conducted a survey asking people like, what are you using that money for? You buying groceries? Are you saving it? Buying a new TV? What are you using? Like, where's the money go? And Every time on those three occasions when those checks were cut, around 35 or 38 percent of the money people reported went to debt, went to things they owed. You know, when we talk about raising people out of poverty, we can't really conceptualize it without thinking about debt. You can't just give somebody, let's say, $100 when they have to turn around and use $70 of that to pay back someone they owed from last week. You know, like there's no way to really get ahead even when you're getting this money, which which is which is generous and it's bold and it's substantial, it's hard to get ahead when you have to divert most of that money, not to necessities and getting ahead in life, but to what you already owe. Kyle Swenson reports on social issues for The Post. Renny Svernovsky produced this story. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Today, officials in New York City announced that they will start requiring proof of vaccination for indoor dining and going to the gym. There are questions about whether other cities should do the same thing. It's just the latest development in the new reality of life with the Delta variant. And we're all trying to figure out how our behavior is supposed to change in this world where COVID cases are rising, even as more and more people get vaccinated. Yesterday on the show, we asked for your questions about this latest surge of the Delta variant. And tomorrow, we will be answering them with a guest host. Hello. Uh, This is Maggie Penman. She is our executive producer, and she'll be filling in as guest host. Yes, I have been going through all of the great questions we've gotten from our listeners. And so many people are asking about how to keep their kids safe as they go back to school, or what the Delta variant surge means for plans like travel or weddings. We'll have Ben Guarino, our science reporter, on to answer some of these questions. So the more people who get vaccinated and, unfortunately, the more people who get infected and produce all kinds of immune fighters against future infection, that's like an immune wall that we're starting to build. And we're going to keep doing this. So it's not too late to send us a voice memo. Just tell us who you are and what your question is and email it to postreports at washpost.com and we'll do our best to answer it. Maggie, I am very excited to listen. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rennie Svernovsky. 
I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.